Jeremiah chapter 5. We're going to read the first nine verses. It says, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in our own places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth and I will pardon her, though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Therefore, I said, surely these are poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. I will go to the great men and speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the desert shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their backslidings have increased. How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me. And sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. They were like well fed, lusty stallions, everyone need after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation? Is this in chapters three through six, Jeremiah is going to deal broadly with the theme of divorce in chapter three, destruction in chapter four, disobedience in chapter five. Here in the fifth chapter, Jeremiah declares Israel's terrible sins, the sins of dishonesty, the sins among the poor and the ignorant in verses one through four, sins among the leaders in verse five, the ongoing problem of idolatry and a and um, a treacherous heart and treachery. If you will, no matter what kind of revelation, no matter what kind of discipline. No matter what God tries to do, the people refuse to cease worshiping idols and visiting brothels. And like I said, included in the laundry list of sins are going to be treachery in verses 11 through 13. They lie about the Lord. Spiritual bankruptcy. The people are stubborn and rebellious in verse 23. The rich know no boundaries when it comes to oppressing the poor. In verse 28, the spiritual leaders are corrupt in verse 31. Because of all of these things, God will visit a terrible punishment, according to verse 6 and according to verses 14 through 19. The people will be set upon by wild animals in verse 6. A lion, a wolf, a leopard tears them apart. The people of Jerusalem and Judea will be attacked and defeated by a hostile enemy. God will bring disaster on the people. They'll be made to serve foreigners because they refuse to listen to God's warnings. 
The Lord reminds them that you will become a slave to whatever your passions are or your addictions. And so in this opening portion, Jeremiah invites us to imagine a city where there's not a single godly or righteous person. Imagine a place where no one keeps God's law. No one keeps his commandments. Everyone ignores the Bible. Imagine the impact on government and education and social services and the economy and churches and homes. If everyone woke up one morning and decided that the Bible isn't true, God doesn't matter, righteousness is irrelevant. Imagine a world where all moral restraints are lifted. Imagine the lawlessness, the violence, the immorality. Morality, the sexual assaults, the abuses and the theft, absent righteousness, absent moral boundaries. Imagine a place where everyone is free to do whatever they want. Imagine a world where there's no biblical, there's no moral boundaries. Imagine a culture that has become utterly corrupt. And I know what you're thinking. I don't have to imagine it. I'm living it. All I have to do is turn on the TV. All I have to do is listen to the radio. All I have to do is just simply watch what's going on all around us. Do you know why I'm bringing this up? Because this is the culture in which Jeremiah is living. Jeremiah serves as God's spokesman. And he's issuing an indictment against the people in chapter 2. We've read over and over Jeremiah's plea for the people. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord. And so, so the Lord invites Jeremiah to a search. A search for decency in the midst of depravity. Jeremiah is invited to find not ten, like in Genesis chapter 18, I think, where, where Abraham is pleading with God that if he could find just ten people in the city of Sodom, that God would stop judgment. God makes an, an incredible deal. He says, if you can find one person, not ten people, not nine people, not eight people, not seven people, not five people. If you can just find one human being who loves me and serves me. If you can find one godly person in the city of Jerusalem, I'll postpone judgment. I'll forgive and I will postpone the judgment on the city. What an amazing thought. God finding one righteous man in order to postpone judgment for all. And it becomes a type and a picture of the New Testament, doesn't it? Where God finds one person who will fulfill all righteousness. Who will keep all of the rules and the regulations. Who will observe all of the commandments. He will find one person who will love him with all of his heart, his soul, and his mind. Who will walk in the perfection of beauty. That person, of course, is Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes the one person who will satisfy all of God's demands for you. Jeremiah looks. What do you suppose he finds? 
Jeremiah finds gross wickedness in verses 1 through 6. Jeremiah finds evidence of apostasy and forsaking the God of their fathers. He finds ongoing adultery in verses 7 through 10. He finds unfaithfulness. He finds outright rejection of God's word. He finds the people persecuting the poor. He finds spiritual blindness and deafness. He finds the people's inability to see or listen to the message that God has for Jeremiah. And so what happens when people stop listening? When they stop seeing? What happens when a person stands up and gives a message and people yawn and they say, I've heard that you've. you've You haven't said anything that I've never heard before. Jeremiah will become the first person to do a series of living dramas. Jeremiah will act out the message of God. This is the first of a series of action adventure sermons where Jeremiah won't just simply speak. But he's going to act out God's message. And it's going to happen over and over again. And you're probably wondering, those of you who are familiar with Jeremiah, you're wondering, well, why does God do that? Why does God allow Jeremiah to act out the message? And the answer might surprise you. It's because of the carnality and the wickedness of the people. It's because their heart is hard. And it's because they're unwilling to listen to God. And so... The Lord allows something shocking and dramatic to take place. Because the people won't listen. Imagine Jeremiah living in our day. Look, you can find this message on YouTube. I'm going to Twitter it. I'm going to YouTube it. I'm going to. It's going to be on drama. You can you can find it on HBO. He's going to try and figure out any way and every way. And so it says, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. And I'm going to suggest to you that this is real. The Lord says, I want you to run up and down the streets. I want you to go up and down the the highways and the byways. See now and know. Seek in, in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. In other words, the Lord invites Jeremiah Search every alleyway, go to every house, go everywhere, go find one person who loves me, who serves me. In spite of their wickedness, God loved them. The people in Jerusalem had sadly not served the Lord for generations. The threat of judgment loomed on the horizon, but God, in his mercy, in his grace, in his love, he's willing to postpone judgment and spare all of the people. If the prophet can find one person living a righteous life, one person who's willing to deal honestly and justly with the people. By the way, this very idea is going to be transported into the future some 300 or 400 years later or into the future. There there was a man named Diogenes, according to the Greek legend, who would walk around with a lantern. He would walk in broad daylight and they said, Diogenes, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking for one honest man. This is during the time of Alexander the Great and Alexander the Great admired Diogenes. 
He was a man who didn't care about anyone or anything. He lived in a tub. He would carry his tub around and he would live inside of the tub. And one day the great King Alexander came to him. He stood by Diogenes and he said, I am here, Alexander, and I am willing to give to you your heart's desire. I have unlimited resources. Just simply tell me what you want, and I will give it to you. And Diogenes said, could you move about two feet to the left or to the right? Because you're blocking my son. Yeah, imagine you could ask for anything. And he could provide anything. And Alexander, instead of getting mad, you know what he said? He said, you know what, if I could be anyone other than Alexander, I would want to be Diogenes. Can you imagine Jeremiah looking through the highways and the byways? He launches the search. And he quickly comes to some conclusions. And those conclusions in, involve the breathtaking wickedness of the people. When he says, if there's anyone who executes judgment, who seeks truth... The word in the Hebrew language is emunah. It means more than a person who just simply says the right thing at the right time or is simply accurate in his speech. It means fidelity towards God. It means integrity towards other people. It means a genuineness within that person. It's a person who is genuine, who is honest. And in verse 2 it says, Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. In other words, what did he find? He found people who perjured themselves. The people were guilty of perjury. They would lie under oath. People would give embellishments and exaggerations. Everyday conversation simply became a series of lies that people would tell each other. Brooke Clark wrote, sometimes the lies you tell are less frightening than the loneliness you might feel if you stopped telling them. Someone recently wrote a book called The Lies That We Tell Each Other. And in it, they did some research to find out if anyone tells the truth. The people had forgotten what the Bible says about lying. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. Proverbs 12, 17. He that speaks truth shows forth righteousness, but a false witness deceit. It says a false witness shall not go unpunished, and he that speaks lies shall perish, it says in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 9. Paul writes in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. It says, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. And then he gives the reason for we are members one of another. Paul's reason is it doesn't make sense for you to lie to each other. Because don't you realize that in Christ, we being one, many are one body, we're joined and and fit together. That it does no good. It actually does harm. And isn't the worst lie of all the one that you tell yourself in the hopes that you'll believe it? And so, 
in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 3, he, he, he basically has talked about the fact that in everyday conversation, people thought it was no big deal to simply swear by God. In verse 3, it says, O oh Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Here's what Jeremiah is saying. They're not only not telling the truth, the people refuse to respond to discipline. The people have refused to repent after repeated warnings. And so God is looking for truth in human beings. He sees beyond the sham. He sees beyond the pretense. In what way has God stricken them? Again, the text doesn't tell us. It might be a drought that's mentioned in verse 25 later. The word correction, but you have refused to receive correction is the Hebrew word musar. It's an interesting word. It was the word that was used to describe the discipline or correction that a parent would give for his or her child, or a leader for the nation, or God for his people. The correction could include physical punishment. It could include stripes. It could include discipline, admonition. It could be something as, as simple as a strong warning. It could serve as instruction or example. In other words, this is a very all-inclusive word that means all kinds of instruction and warning. And that seems to be the case. And that seems to be the case with us. God gives us chance after chance, time after time. The Lord knocks on the surface of your heart and says, I need you to put away that thing. I need you to walk away from that. I need you to cease and desist in this particular area. But over and over and over again, the people refuse to respond. And so Jeremiah continues the search in verse four. Therefore, I said, surely these are poor. They are foolish for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. In other words, he goes among the impoverished people, the poor people. The down and outers, the people who are isolated, the forgotten people, the rejected people. Did he feel them living a life of honor and honesty? Jeremiah's response, he can't find any suitable candidates among the, the poor. And Jeremiah's conclusion is, well, there's a reason why. It's because these people lack spiritual training or religious instruction. You know, if they grew up in a good Christian home, then maybe they would understand what it means to be honest and real. The reason why I can't find anyone among them is because they don't know any better. They are foolish. They haven't known the way of the Lord. They haven't known about the judgment of God. They don't understand what they're doing. And so now Jeremiah will search among the nobility and the religious leaders. And Jeremiah discovers Okay, I'm going to go to people who know the Bible, who know the commandments of God, who know the promises of God. Surely I'll find one person there. And what does he find? <laughs> In verse five. I'll go to the great men and speak to them. 
for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Jeremiah discovers that even the spiritual leaders, the people who know the Bible, who know the promises in the Bible, who know the commandments in the Bible, they know the promises, they know the commandments, and they choose to ignore the law. In spite of a diligent search, Jeremiah can't find a single person who's honest and truthful. And here the yoke is, by the way, the yoke of the law. It's the burden of God's commands on the people. And the bonds are the ropes that would be used to tie the yoke to the neck of the oxen. And so it becomes a metaphor, a picture of the people who have cut themselves away from God's word, God's promises, God's plan. These are people who know the Bible, who read the Bible, who understand the Bible, and who just simply say, this can't be done. This isn't even possible. Everybody lies. Everybody cheats. Everybody steals. Everybody acts selfishly. And so the Lord will decide that he's going to allow the invaders to enter the land. And look what it says in verse 6. When he says, therefore, a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf from the desert shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn to pieces because their transgressions are many. Their backslidings have increased. Now, understand what's happening. Jeremiah likens the people to animals who are tied up by their master. And when you have an oxen, when you have a mule, when you have a cow, and you tie up the animal, and then the animal is allowed to roam free, what happens to the oxen, the cow, the cattle, the mule, the sheep, whatever it happens to be, what happens when it's allowed to roam free, as free as the wind blows? What happens to them? They become the object of predators, the lion, the leopard, the wolf. In other words, once the once the the silly animal says, I'm free, I can go where I want and I can do what I want. The animal has gotten free only to be set upon by a lion or met by a wolf or torn to pieces by a leopard. And that's how people feel. Hey, I'm free. I'm no longer under the yoke and the bondage of sin. I can drink what I want to drink and I can drug what I want to drug and I can sleep with whomever I want. And by the way, if you're free to drink and to drug and to sleep with whomever you want to, what kind of freedom does sin offer? Hey, I'm now I'm free to, to have a sexually transmitted disease. Now I'm free To have AIDS and to die a most horrible death. Now I'm free to be ravaged by drugs and alcohol. I'm free as I watch my job disappear and my wife disappear and my husband disappear and my life disappear. By the way, does freedom to indulge your every fantasy make you healthier, happier? 
If that were true, then it would stand to reason that the prostitute should be the happiest person in the whole wide world. But that's not true, is it? Does the person who says, I'm going to have unlimited drug use, does that person find freedom? Or is there a slow downward spiral as everything physical and psychological and then spiritual begins to waste away? That's the abandonment of God and the attachment to pleasure that's talked about in in verse 7. Look what it says. How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and your children are the people who are living in Jerusalem. Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's houses. Listen carefully. The Lord will ask two questions. The first question is here. Why should I forgive you? The next question is in verse nine. Help me understand why I shouldn't punish you. And look at the context. The Lord says, your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods when I had fed them to the full. In other words, here's what he's saying. I supplied all of your needs. I supplied all of your needs. I gave you everything that you needed mentally, emotionally. You see, and here's the lie. The lie is God hasn't given me everything that I need. God hasn't given me everything that I wanted. God hasn't satisfied me intellectually or socially. God hasn't satisfied me. And here's what the Lord says. No, I have satisfied you. I have given you everything that you needed. In order to experience the kindness and goodness that God has always wanted you to experience. Yet they used God's gifts to commit sin and serve idols. The kindness and goodness of God is always intended to bring us to a place of repentance and submission. But the people were ungrateful. And the Lord exposes the people to be ungrateful and unthankful. And the Lord names three transgressions forsaking God. Swearing by false gods and adultery. And then in verse eight, it says they were like well-fed, lusty stallions. Everyone need after his neighbor's wife. I know it's hard to believe this is actually in the Bible instead of on, on animal planet. huh? He's saying all of the people in Judea and Jerusalem are acting like animals in heat. The Bible, not me. That's the image that the Bible is using. Do you know what? When people think of themselves as animals. When people think of other people like animals. Doesn't it make sense to you that people will start to act like animals? And the people of Canaan had been so influential to the people of Judea and Jerusalem. Remember, in the ancient times in Canaan, they embraced fertility gods and goddesses. 
in, in their way of thinking, they lived in an ancient world where they believed that Baal was the god of the storm, that Baal brought rain. When God withheld the rain, the people would turn to their pagan neighbors and their belief systems in order to bring the rain. Josiah had gotten rid of the temple prostitutes, but the people still found ways to satisfy their lusts. In other words, sexual expression in that culture and society had the religious stamp of approval in that culture and society among all of Jerusalem and Judea's neighbors, they would say, what, what, why, are you, why are you freaking out? How come you're acting like such a prude? Sex is natural. It seems, look, sexual relations are created by the gods and see, in their way of thinking... In their way of thinking, sexual expression became the way in which to worship and to thank the gods for fertility and for crops. And so, in other words, here's what they were basically saying. Why does it shock you? Why does it surprise you that in the ancient world people worshipped sex and believed that there was nothing wrong with unbiblical sexual expression? And you're thinking, when was this thing written again? 600 years before Jesus? Doesn't this sound strangely modern and hip? You Christians, you are so out of touch. The Bible is so out of touch. Here's what the Lord says. There are physical and there are social there are psychological, there are spiritual implications. When you go in a direction that's different from what God has designed, you could get hurt really bad. And so when the Lord says in verse nine, shall I not punish them for these things? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? This is something that is utterly, utterly foreign in our thinking. A God who would punish people, a God who would avenge himself. And let me tell you why. Because when we think about punishment, we use worldly standards of, of punishment and vengeance. In other words, when someone hurts us, we want to punish them. When someone does something against us, we want to take vengeance. But God isn't like you and me. When God even uses the term punishment and vengeance, he is using the term from the perspective of his own complete righteousness and holiness. He's not doing it in the sense of you're ugly and wicked and I want to hurt you because you're ugly and wicked. That's not what's happening in this text. It is. I'm righteous. And holy. And when you resist God and you rebel against God and you go down a path of wickedness and rebellion and self-destruction. It is not only offensive to his complete and pure and holy nature. But remember, the Bible repeatedly says 
God is not mocked. What a person sows, that also they will reap. The reality is rebellion and resistance reaps judgment. But do you understand Jeremiah's message of love and intervention? Jeremiah's message of love and intervention is, doesn't have to be that way. You could repent right now. You can turn from your sin right now. There is a loving, gracious, merciful God who is looking for not just the opportunity to forgive you, but also to receive you into his loving arms. Shall I not punish them for these things, it says in verse 9. And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Now, one of the things that I need you to think about is the false idea. The false idea that what I say and what I do doesn't really matter to God. Are you left with that impression from this text? Or are you left with the profound impression? No, the Bible seems to have a reoccurring thing, theme that what I say and what I do does matter. And then in verse 10, it says, go up on her walls and destroy. Do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. In other words, God answers the question by telling Jeremiah to go to the vineyards, to the vine rows. And he says, tear them up. But don't tear them up completely. Why? There's going to be judgment. I'm going to take away some of those things, but not completely. Remember, in the Bible, Judah and Jerusalem often become a picture of the vine. You know, in the New Testament where Jesus, where it says, you are the vine, we are the branches in John's gospel. Jesus is the source and the sustenance of life. And so the Lord says, look, the judgment is going to come, but it's not going to be a devastating and overwhelming judgment because guess what? I have a plan and a purpose and I'm still going to accomplish the plan and the purpose that I have. Here's the historical context. They're going to go to Babylon. Idolatry is no longer going to be a part of their life. They're going to return to Judea and Jerusalem. The temple is going to be rebuilt. And remember, Jesus is going to come. And then in verse 11, it says, For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt treacherously with me, says the Lord. Do you know what that means? God's people have been faithless. The people have departed from God. This becomes an important point. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt treacherously with me, says the Lord. Here's the Lord's statement. I didn't leave you. You left me. I didn't abandon you. You abandoned me. I didn't stop loving you. You stopped loving me. You see, everything in human nature wants to blame anyone other than ourselves for the problems that we have. Guess what? When you come to the conclusion that God is the problem, 
that he hasn't dealt justly with you, that he hasn't dealt fairly with you. God, why did you put me in this family? Why did you have me re-raised under these circumstances? Why did you expose me to drugs, alcohol, and this? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? God, it's your fault. You made me this way. You made me this way. There's a reason why I'm living in rebellion and resisting you. It's because you have, have, have not been completely honest with me. And God says, no, I've been completely honest with you. And I've been completely fair with you. The issue isn't whether or not I've been completely honest and completely fair. The issue is, have you been completely honest and have you been completely fair? Look what it says in verse 12. They have lied about the Lord and said, it is not he. Neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. Who's lied about the Lord? The false prophets, the false teachers. The false spiritual leaders. They said, hey, guess what? God isn't going to judge you. The evil isn't going to come. The judgment isn't going to come. All of this talk about the sword and famine and about armies coming down and overthrowing us and occupying our land. That's not true. What kind of a God allows evil and suffering to fall on his people? A just God and a holy God and a righteous God, a God who loves you and communicates to you, a God who says. If you will live this way and if you will love this way, then th this is going to be the benefits. And if you resist and rebel and reject, this is going to be the punishment and the result and the judgment the children of Judah and the people in Jerusalem would walk through the streets and they would say, God has promised to defend us and not to destroy us. I'm the head and not the tail. God has saved me for prosperity. Really? You see, for the person who lives estranged from God and detached from God and distant from God. The Bible says, no, they're not they're not being exactly honest with you. And in verses 13 and 14, it says, and the prophets became become wind for the word is not in them. Thus it shall thus shall it be done to them. In other words, <laughs> The people who claimed to be prophets weren't exactly being right or fair or honest. And the true prophets have become wind. By the way, is Jeremiah alone? No, there's still some other people who love and serve the Lord. We know about Zephaniah and his message of judgment. We know about the prophetess Huldah, whom Josiah consults after the temple reforms. There seems to be others who were contemporaries of Jeremiah who spoke faithfully the word of God and the warnings of God, and they were rejected. And so over and over again, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Huldah. They would say, hey, you know what? If ever there was a time to get right with God, now seems to be the time. If ever there was a time to turn from your sin, now seems to be the time. If ever you wanted to embrace grace and mercy and hope, do it now. Do it now. In verse 14, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word. Behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire. 
and this people would. And it shall devour them. What does that mean? Jeremiah is going to say the words of God. And the words of God are going to be like fire. And the people are going to be like wood. Think carefully about what it's saying. The people have rejected the message of God. And because the people have rejected the message of God. When Jeremiah opens his mouth, people are going to go, this burns. This stings. I don't want to hear this anymore. I don't want to I don't want to hear this anymore. By the way, when he uses the term, behold, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, that expression, that title of God, the Lord God of hosts speaks of his sovereign power. It speaks of God's unlimited power to execute his will and accomplish his judgment. That's what that means. And in verse 15, it says, behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar. O house of Israel, says the Lord, it is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. The house of Israel includes everyone who's in the family of faith. And the description is general. It could apply to Babylon. It could apply to Assyria. It could apply to Egypt. All of those nations would fit into that category. The only nation that wouldn't fit into the category is probably Scythia. Because it wasn't an ancient nation. And it didn't have a longevity, if you will. I suspect that what he's talking about is the nation of Babylon. And he is going to bring the nation and they are going to execute judgment. And in verse 16, it says their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty men. The quiver means that it is their their ammunition and their weapons are loaded with death. And so when the Lord says, and guess what? I'm going to create a mechanism where you won't be able to overcome them. In verse 17, it says, and they shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and daughters should eat. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. It's Jeremiah's way of saying everything that you worked for, everything that you slaved for, everything that you labored for. When you take the sum and the substance of everything that you've ever done and why you did it. They're going to take it away from you. They shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust with the sword. The big issue. You will trust the Lord. Or you will trust something other than the Lord. By the way, the moment that you decide not to trust the Lord, what are your options? I could trust myself. I can trust my wealth. I can trust my mind. I can trust my relatives. I can trust the government. And I know you're thinking, no, you can't. You can't trust the government. By the way, when you start to compile a list of all of the things that you think that you can count on. And if God isn't at the top of the list and if Jesus Christ, the Lord isn't at the top of the list. What will you do? In verse 18, it says, Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will make a, 
it, it says, and it's important you read this. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not, I repeat, I will not make a complete end of you. You know what that promise means? That Israel and Judah and Jerusalem won't cease as a people or as a nation. I will not make a complete end of you. Why? Judgment is coming. Yes. Complete judgment? Total judgment? Total annihilation? No. Why? There's unfulfilled promises. Messiah has to come. Messiah has to be born a Jew. And he has to be born in Bethlehem. And he has to be raised in Nazareth. God has unfinished business and God will finish the business. When he says, nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. Nothing, I repeat, nothing will happen to you. Until God's done with you. And by the way, when God is done with you, anything could happen. One day, you'll wake up. And it will be the last day that you ever live. It will be the last day that you have that cup of coffee. It will be the last day that you have that hot tea. It will be the last day that you have breakfast. It will be the last day that you drive your car. It will be the last day. It will be the last day. And in verse 19 it says, and it will be when you say, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? (laughs) Don't you just want to go, how many more chapters do you need? Why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? What part of resist me, reject me, rebel against me, forget me, deny me, have nothing to do with me? At what point are you going to start to get it and go, oh, why does the Lord our God do all these things? I know what you're thinking, because some of you have said that. God, why are you doing this to me? Truth. I'm not wise enough or smart enough to know the answer to to that question as it applies to you. But God, in the book of Jeremiah, is wise enough and smart enough to give us a reason for why it's happening to them. Then you shall answer them. Just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. Why is this happening? Here's the answer Jeremiah is supposed to give. Because you've abandoned me and rejected me. You prayed to foreign gods and loved them. And so guess what? I'm going to give you more foreign gods than you can shake a stick at. And by the way, I am absolutely convinced that Daniel the prophet read Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 19. He read Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 18. And it filled his heart with hope as he realized that the unfinished plans of God were going to be accomplished. And then in verse 20, look what it says. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying. Hear this, O foolish people without understanding who have eyes and don't see who have ears and don't hear. Now, think, think where we've come in in the chapter investigation, search, investigation, CSI. We should say JSI, Jeremiah, crime scene investigation. 
Search, Jeremiah. Okay. None godly. Okay. From investigation, we move to condemnation. The people are ungrateful. Devastation. The people are unfaithful. Proclamation. Proclaim it in Judah. (laughs) Hear this, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not. Do you remember when we were worshiping the Lord and we said, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Did you really mean it? Lord, open up my eyes. Open up my heart. Hear this now, foolish people without understanding, who have eyes and see not. In other words, he's basically saying, I need you to open up your eyes and I need you to open up your heart. By the way, when Jeremiah called them foolish people without understanding, does that sound a little like name calling to you? In a way. Do you think they're angry? Do you think the people... Let me just be blunt. Do you think the people are angry and annoyed with Jeremiah? I think you're right. Do you think Jeremiah's description, you're foolish, you're without understanding, you don't have eyes to see, you don't have ears to hear. Will his description sufficiently shake them out of their indifference and apathy and cause them to wake up? Jeremiah's profile of his people. You are foolish. You are senseless. You are blind. You are deaf. Doesn't that sound strangely familiar to you in the New Testament? Doesn't Jesus talk about people who have eyes, but they don't see and ears, but they don't hear? Jesus, what are you trying to say? I love you and I'm willing to forgive you if you'll let me. We don't believe you. Your sin is a huge problem. It's not as bad as all that. It's so very, very bad that in order to make the problem go away, I'm going to have to die for you. And look what it says in verse 22. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? Who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it. And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. Let me give you the blunt, simple part of this. Do the mighty oceans obey God? What do you think the answer is? Yeah, God created the planet Earth. There's a moon that orbits our planet. That moon governs the tides on the planet. So there's a sun that's 93 million miles away. There's an earth that we live on. It rotates on its axis. It's attached to a moon which governs the tide. Here's the point. The whole universe obeys God. But the people of God won't obey him. And by the way, have have any of you ever been to the beach? And have you ever stuck your toes in the sand at the beach? 
Does sand seem to be an awesome barrier to hold back the waves? When you pick up a grain of sand and you go, wow, this sand is what stops the ocean from proceeding forward. True or false? The sand doesn't stop the waves. What stops the waves? I know the scientific person is going to go, gravity. And who made gravity? God made gravity. So God causes the waves to stop where they're supposed to stop. Yeah. But this people has a defiant and a rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. Do you know what's really interesting about that verse? The people were able to do what the sun cannot do and what the moon cannot do and what the stars cannot do and what the oceans cannot do. Resist God. Rebel against God. Do you think it's awful for God to say, isn't there even one drop inside of your head and inside of your heart that causes you to think, one day I'm going to stand before God. One day I'm going to have to give an account of my life. In verse 24, they do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God. Who gives rain, both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. By the way, we see the word heart three times in four verses. And rain in the ancient times was a symbol of God's goodness and God's blessing. This is the autumn rain and the spring rain necessary for the growth of crops. The harvest season was late April and May. It was usually dry. Rain at that season would destroy the crop. The point that the passage is making is God brings the rain at a Exactly the time that it needs to be in order to cause the crops to grow. And he withholds the rain so that the crop is not destroyed. Don't you understand that the times and the seasons and the circumstances of your life are all ordered in such a way because God isn't trying to find an excuse to kill you and destroy you. He's trying to find an excuse to keep you alive. It's God who puts food on your table. It's God who allows the mortgage to be paid or the rent to be paid. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who in due time at exactly the right moment demonstrates his care by sending the rain at exactly the right time and withholding the rain at exactly the right time. And so in verse 25, it says your iniquities have turned these things away. And your sins have withheld good from you. Jeremiah speaking on behalf of the Lord to the group of people. And he says, you want to know why bad things are happening? Your iniquities have turned these things away. Your sins have withheld good from me. By the way, is that a carte blanche thing? Can we always say, hey, the reason why this is happening in my life is because my iniquity and my sin has somehow caused God to withhold good from me. I'm going to suggest to you that that might be a possible answer, but it can't be the answer every single time. Is it possible that you pray and you love and you serve and you do everything right? And sometimes bad things happen. 
I think that the answer is yes. But forged in the crucible of suffering is character. God will begin to reveal the truth about what's going on inside of you. In verse 26 it says, For among my people are found wicked men. The expression, my people, is a form of personal tenderness. For when he says, for among my people are found wicked men, the wicked men here are the people who are supposed to encourage one another. Here, the sense seems to be those who are rich have acquired their riches by deceit and craftiness. It says, for among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men as a cage full of birds. So their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. Here, the criticism is the dishonest man, the con man, the person who can generate lots of money on the naivete and the gullibility of God's people. Is it possible that people posing as God's people can take advantage of other people? Can someone get on the radio? Can someone get on the television and say, I'm God's man with God's message and I want you to send me your social security money. And God's man with God's message lives in one of his six houses and takes his helicopter from one meeting to the next. Are all people on the radio and TV dishonest con men? I'll leave that up to you. Let me just put it this way. Multi-level is of the devil. And we'll leave it at that. Verse 28. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause of the poor and the impoverished. The cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper. And the right of the needy they don't defend. The whole idea, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Here, fat isn't a, a statement of... You know, the biggest loser are being overweight. It's an expression of those who have grown large on the ill-gotten gains. And by the way, the term sleek, for they have grown fat and they are sleek. In the Hebrew, it's really interesting. The word shiny. The word could also be translated greasy. Have you ever seen someone who greased their hair or they greased their forehead and their forehead and their hair because of the grease just started to shine. I think that that's what this word means. I think it could mean their greasy faces glistened. That's pretty descriptive. Their greasy faces glisten because they're living off of other people's Vital fluids. And yet they prosper. Here's the question. How do you explain when the people rob and cheat and steal? How is it that God allows them to continue to prosper? Israel's called to seek the welfare of the needy and express social justice and take care of the poor. 
And then in verse 29, it says, shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? He repeats the question that he asks earlier in chapter in verse nine In verse 30. An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. So what the people think is normal is astonishing and horrible. And that's the key concept here. The rich get richer, the poor get poor. I knew that. People take advantage of people. I knew that. People lie. I knew that. People cheat. People take advantage of one another. People don't do what's right. I knew that. And the point of the passage is this. God sees it and knows it. And he's not okay with it. Even if you are. Even if you've grown accustomed to it. And then in verse 31, it says the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power. Or we could even translate this. They instruct according to their own authority. Criminals will sometimes delude themselves into thinking, I'll get away with my crime. Sinners sometimes delude themselves into thinking, I'll get away with my sin. It says the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own authority. And my people love to have it so. Here's the big question I want to ask you. That statement, and my people love to have it so. Is this the voice of Jeremiah or is this the voice of God? I think a credible argument could be made for either one. But what will you do in the end? What will you do in the end? Guess what? The whole next chapter is going to be spent answering that question. So what does Jeremiah's investigation yield? The people are ungodly, verses 1 through 6. Investigation leads to condemnation. The people are ungrateful, verses 7 through 9. Investigation, condemnation, devastation. The people are unfaithful, in verses 10 through 19. Jeremiah's message, proclamation, left the people unmoved. So you're willing to change now. People's response? No. Remember, I keep telling you every week, Jeremiah is going to come up with yet another way to say, hey, won't you turn from your sin and turn to the Lord and experience grace and mercy and joy? The false prophets claimed to speak for God, but in reality, they were only projecting the people's wishes. They were only projecting the people's wishes. The false prophets were saying... Everything's cool. Everything's fine. Nothing bad could possibly happen. After all, we're Jews. We're the sons of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. This is the place where the temple is. This is the place where the sacrifices are made. This is the place where God represents himself to the planet Earth. What could possibly go wrong? This is America. This is a Bible. This is a church. What could possibly go wrong? The answer. 
If my people who are called by my name will turn from their sin and humble themselves and cry out, I will hear. That's the ongoing message. You have an opportunity always, at least for now, to say, Lord, I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to Jesus and I want to honor him and I want to live my life in obedience and submission to you. Because I know that the, that the other way will just lead to death. It will lead to destruction. I can't live an empty life anymore. We have 45 more chapters. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you. Lord... What an interesting character our friend Jeremiah is. He goes out in search for one person. One person who will love you. One person who will honor you. One person who will trust you. One person who will tell the truth. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is one person who is good. There is one person who is kind. There is one person who is generous. There is one person who lived the life that we could never live and who died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead. There's one person, Lord, who did everything that we can't do to become the satisfying solution to the problem of our sin. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.